Smith, and let's just go ahead and do this. Anybody lose a green iPhone? Anybody? <laughs> Is it yours? I thought that was yours. I was going to sell it, but I'll give it to you. So, come on over. Sorry, I didn't mean to embarrass you, but there you go. Oh, Samsung. Sorry about that. She's got a Samsung, not an iPhone. Yeah. <laughs> tells you how much I know about technology. So, David Smith, tough name to pronounce, spell, but nonetheless, grateful you guys are here. Hey, uh, this past Wednesday, uh, Monday, I had a chance to go down to Wilmore, Kentucky. Anybody know about this thing happening? Yeah, it's pretty exciting. Asbury University, uh, whether you want to call it awakening or revival, they've had 12 straight days of worship and prayer in uh, their, I think, a thousand-seat auditorium. I'm not exactly sure how it started. There's two different stories that are out there. One of them, I think it Partially could be true after the gentleman gets done doing, I think, their 1 p.m. chapel service, just a normal Wednesday at Asbury. At the end of it, uh, there was some sort of comment of, hey, if you guys want to come back for prayer or anything you need to feel like you just need to get off your chest, come back. I'll be here till about 2 p.m. Then I have a meeting after that. And supposedly, a couple of the students came back to receive some prayer just to go a little bit further in their worship. Another student, another student, before you know, there was a large gathering of the student body there, and then what turned to just a large gathering of the student body turned into more and more, and so here we are 12 days later as they continue to worship and to pray. And why I wanted to share it with you is not because I believe you have to go down to Asbury to experience the revival of the Lord in your own heart. No, you, that can happen anywhere, anytime. One of the things I love that we do here on uh, Fridays at noon, except for this Friday, because we have a student retreat, we meet here in a prayer room setting, and it's just a simple place to come and be with the Lord. So you can do it anywhere at any time. But I decided to go down. There was my day off, and I just, I just wanted to be a part of it. That was it. And as I got there, the first thing I recognized was just the gentleness and the sweetness of the spiritual atmosphere. And if there was two words to just summarize my experience there— would be simple and unimpressive. Now, when I say unimpressive, obviously what I'm talking about, unimpressive, kind of in the perspective of the ways of the world. There was no polish, no production. There was no personalities. There was no hyper-charismania. It was one guy on a guitar, somebody on an old piano, two young ladies singing, and I think there was somebody on a hand drum in the back. And they would get done with a song. They would look at each other. Somebody would sing a couple words, and they would just go with it. And that's really all that was going on. People would come up and they would pray, but none of it was like, look at me, let's produce, let's put polish on it. It was so stripped down. And so what I feel like the Lord said to me on the way out of here is, David, just keep it simple. If there's any word of advice for our church that I feel like the Lord put on my heart, is let's just keep it simple. The Lord doesn't need us. He blesses us. And so as we try to maybe sometimes put a little extra effort on the polish or the production, I feel like the Lord's saying, thank you, but I don't need it. Let's just keep it simple. And so I was up in the balcony for one portion, and there was a, a gentleman in his 70s, and he was there with the rest of his family. And we had a moment to turn around and introduce ourselves to other people. And he said, he goes, listen, it was a seven-hour drive for us. He goes, I'm 75 years old. I didn't want to take that drive, but I decided to come because I just wanted to participate. I could have watched it online. I could have read about it. I could have looked at pictures. I said, but I 
just wanted to be here. He said, I've been a pastor for 40-some years, and what I recognize is that when I participate, the power and the presence of God just feels so much stronger in my life. And so I just want to encourage you. You know, Lindsay shared some really good stuff up here. We got Lent coming up, baptisms on March 5th, you know, Everyday Kingdom. We're asking you guys to think of one transformational event you can do every year. The bottom line is just participate. If you're in that place where you're going, I want to experience the power and presence of God more in my life, I'm not trying to give you some works-based theology, but just participate in whatever it may be. Participate in something that's building the kingdom of God, and let's just see what happens. And so, I encourage you guys to go down. I think this um, thing at Asbury is probably going to go on for a little bit longer, but if you've got some wiggle room, it's an easy two-hour drive. Just encourage it. Check it out. So... There you go. All right, well, as we get going today, I want to share with you a story. And, you know, from time to time, we love sharing with you stories from the Care Center. And it's just part of our DNA, who we are. we got some great stories of people uh, getting jobs right now, having spiritual impact. Just love what's happening. But I want to share today my favorite story ever from the Care Center. I don't know if I can have a favorite, but this is it, at least for today. And the reason why this is my favorite story, because it's about a friend of mine who I've known for 20 years. And she's a single mom who's living in one of the communities that we serve. And back when she was in her late 20s, the father of her two children decided to get up and just leave. Abandoned her with the two kids to raise them on her own, and also a plethora of challenges. One of her sons is challenged greatly with autism. There's epilepsy, diabetes, partial facial paralysis, and her two sons, in her words, not mine, have incredibly strong, rebellious streaks. And so she was left with more challenges we have time to talk about today. So many challenges. But here's what amazes me, is that my friend will tell you, despite all the things that she has wrestled with, the thing that haunts her the most is not autism, it's not diabetes, it's not epilepsy, what haunts her the most is a single realization. And that realization is that I didn't do anything wrong. Now, my friend would never say that she's sinless. Like, she understands that. But the things that she's wrestling with, the struggles that she's enduring, there is no direct link back to a decision, a mistake, or a sin that she's committed. She goes, I just don't get it. I didn't do anything wrong. Why hasn't God eased my suffering? And if you start asking yourself that question for over 20 years, it can start wearing on you. And so there's days where she begins to wonder, would it have been better if I wasn't born? And then did God at some point decide to abandon me? Would it have been better if I just wasn't born? In about 15 minutes, you're going to meet my friend. You're going to hear a little bit more of her story. But if you're in our reading plan right now, you kind of know where this is going. We're in the book of Job right now. And if you're not in the reading plan, you can go right through those double doors. You'll find some journals on the side. You can jump in anytime. We'd love to have you. But the real question of Job isn't why do bad things happen to good people, like with my friend. But the question is, why do we worship God? And we've talked about that the bullseye of this entire series, that we want to be true worshipers of God. And what that means is that we don't just love God when the good gifts come or when the suffering is spared. But instead, the reason why we love God is because of who he is. That is a true worshiper in the heart, the core of their very being. Why do we love God? We love him because of who he is. 
Do we thank him for the blessings? Absolutely. Do we thank him when he spares us from suffering? Absolutely. But the reason we love him is because of who he is. And so we pick up today with Job hitting the lowest point in his life. He's lost his livestock, his servants, his own children. And so Job is plagued with the same question that my friend was plagued with. Did God abandon me? Would it have been better if I wasn't born? But at least in Job's grief, he's not alone. Because what we're going to see today is that in his suffering, three of Job's friends come to him and console him during this difficult time. But what's more almost shocking than the suffering that Job is going through is the fact that when his three friends arrive, they don't try to fix him. Like, I don't know if anybody else struggles like I do. If I have a friend, a family member, somebody I care about, and they are suffering, the first thing I want to do is fix them. Like, I can get rid of this problem. I don't know if it's because I believe it will give me some sort of value in my life, or maybe I just love them that much, but I want to fix them immediately. And these three friends do nothing like that at all. Instead, what these three friends do, they show up, and they just sit and they mourn with Job. They don't say a word. It is empathy done so well. In Job chapter 2, it says that they gave no words because Job's suffering was great. You know, over the years, I've sat with people on their deathbed. And I'll tell you, my biggest wrestling match in there is I want to say the perfect thing. I want to pray the most powerful prayer. I never do. And when the family kind of leads me out, maybe of the hospital or of the house, I start apologizing to them. Oh, I'm so sorry. I should have said something more. I should have prayed. I'm just, you know, I'm just beyond myself. And they say, David, just being here was enough. Just being here is enough. And so for these three friends, that's what they're providing for Job. They're sitting with him quietly, mourning and empathizing with what he is going through. And so as we get to chapter 3, what I have to assume is that the empathy of these three friends is actually having a positive impact in Job's life. Because what we see is right there in front of them, after seven days of silent suffering, Job obviously feels safe enough at this point to start unleashing and crying out with raw, unfiltered emotion. And the words of anguish that come next, they're kind of hard to hear. They are. Like, even for us reading it as the audience, it's hard to hear, but I imagine some of us can relate because we've been there. Or maybe we're there right now. And we're suffering greatly like Job, though having done nothing wrong. And what I mean by that is that we're suffering, but we didn't cheat on our spouse. We didn't drink too much. We didn't steal from work. But we're suffering Anyway, And so what do we do when we're suffering like a criminal, but we haven't committed a crime? I don't mean that any of us are sinless theologically. No, we all have committed a crime just by the fall nature of humanity. What I'm talking about is that we're enduring a struggle that we can't connect back to any specific decision, mistake, or sin that we made. What do we do when we're suffering like a criminal, but we have not committed the crime? So let me pray, and we're going to look at the book of Job today and try to answer that question. So Father, we just ask right now, would you soften our hearts for what you have for us today? As we always pray, Lord, would you take my agenda, any motives I have, just anything I bring to this talk that's not of you, Lord, would you cut it out right now? Just get rid of it, push it off to the side. We want to hear from you and you alone. And so in your name we pray, amen. So let's open up to Job chapter 3, verse 11. And here's 
here's what it says. So Job in his great confusion is still asking the question, and he's going to be asking for a while, why am I suffering so greatly in this time? He says, why did I not perish at birth? Why did I perish and die as I came from the womb? We'll also see the prophet Jeremiah says similar words like this. And the reason why I wanted to pause here is you can look at this and think, oh, he's cursing God. He's really laying into God. He's really challenging him, but he's not. He's not cursing God. He's cursing the day of his birth. And what's another problem that happens in this little verse right here is people think this promotes suicide. It's okay if I hurt myself because Job wanted to die in this moment. It never says that Job wants to die. What it says is I just wish I was never born. Actually, two entirely different things. So be careful with these first two verses. He's saying, I wish I wasn't born. Why are there knees to receive me? Breasts that I might be nursed. For now I would be lying down in peace. I'd be asleep and at rest with kings and rulers of the earth who built for themselves places now lying in ruins with princes who had gold who filled their houses with silver. For why was I not hidden away in the ground like a stillborn child, like an infant who never saw the light of day? There the wicked cease from turmoil, and there the weary are at rest. And Job will continue the rest of this chapter lamenting his loss. And here's what I want to say about that. I want to say, good job, Job. Because this is where we trip up. This man is hurting, he is crushed with his struggle, but at least he's grieving. And he's feeling safe enough to share. I'll tell you what, if any of us, we are grieving right now, we are wrestling with some sort of struggle, your first step is begin to ask yourself, how do I grieve appropriately? How do I not keep this on the inside, bottled in, but begin to let it out? But something changes, and I'm not sure why it changes. And I would call this the fallout. And it's shocking because instead of continuing to listen and console Job, the three friends do a U-turn here. And the U-turn is so fast, it's hard not to get whiplash. Like, they just make this incredibly quick U-turn, and they go from consoling him to telling Job, Hey, Job, because you're suffering, let's just get it on the table. It proves that you've committed a crime against God. And you won't admit it, and you're hiding it, and you're in sin. Can you imagine that? There's seven days, no words, sitting in silence, loving well. They do this quick U-turn, and oh, by the way, I just want to let you know, on day eight or nine, the reason you're suffering is you've committed a sin, and you just won't admit it. Here we go, Job chapter four. This is the fallout, verse one. Then Eliphaz, the Tamanite, replied, hey, Job, if someone ventures a word with you, I'm just curious, are you going to be impatient? Are you going to push back? And this is kind of an oh-no moment. Because what we're seeing here is something is about to be communicated that Job is not going to want to hear. But he says, who can keep from speaking? So Job, think how you've instructed many. That's pretty positive. It's pretty good here for a moment. How you've strengthened feeble hands. You've supported those who stumbled. You've strengthened faltering knees. But this is like the flattery before the fallout. Like people who communicate on Sunday morning, they experience this quite a bit. Like, it'd be like one of you coming to me today and saying, boy, David, I love that opening story. It was hilarious. You were so funny. You're funnier than I thought. Now, your theology is that of a toddler, but your opening story was fantastic, right? Flattery before the fall. I've never heard that from, okay, maybe a few times I've heard from you guys, but nonetheless, like, that's okay. I'll take the compliment. But that happens so often where we have this flattery. Well, let me get to the fallout. And so we go 
to the next verse. But now trouble comes to you, Job, and you're discouraged. It strikes you, and you're dismayed. And there it is. This is the fallout. Job, you should not let your piety be your confidence, and your blameless ways your hope. Consider now who, being innocent, has ever perished. Where were the upright ever destroyed? And so they're looking at Job as someone who's getting destroyed right now. He's basically saying, you must have sinned. As I've observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. At the breath of God they perish. At the blast of his anger they are no more. And I'll tell you what, this is the moment I just want to hate these three friends, don't you? Like, they're really hard to root for at this point. And I find myself wanting to despise them. But I'll say this. Despite their lack of tact and timing, what are they really doing wrong here? Because all they're doing is sharing their theology with Job. Now, maybe Job doesn't agree with it, but their theology here is, hey, Job, those who sin must be in suffering, and those who are blessed, they must be blameless. Yes, tact and timing are off, but they're just sharing their theology. And some will actually say, hey, don't challenge the three friends because they're actually right. Because at some point, when we go from this world to the next, the wicked will be judged and the righteous will be blessed. Right? Isn't that true? And we can all nod our heads and go, yeah, I, I guess ultimately that will be the truth. But here's the problem with that interpretation here is because what Job and his friends are concerned about in this moment is not the ultimate, it's the immediate. They're not debating about what's going to happen in heaven one day in the future, they're debating about what's happening right now on earth in the present moment and the reason behind it. So you've got to look at what are they actually arguing about. They're not arguing about heaven. They're actually arguing about the immediate, not the ultimate. And that's when it hit me. And I don't know if it was Wednesday or it was Thursday, but during my time of study, what I felt like God said to me wasn't an audible voice, but just something in my heart said, David, stop villainizing these three friends. Because again, I love that. I feed off that. Stop villainizing villainizing these three friends. And here's why. Because Job is making the exact same mistake the three friends are. They're all making the same mistake. You can't point your finger at anyone. And here's the mistake they are all making. Is that Job and his three friends are judging an evolving story as if it was complete and finished. That's one of the most dangerous things we can do in life. I'm going to judge this evolving story that's not finished yet as complete. In fact, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul warns us about making this mistake. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, he says, Judge nothing before the appointed time, but wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness. He will expose the motives of, of the heart. And at that time, each will receive their praise from God. In other words, what Paul is saying is that until the appointed time comes, and you are face to face with God at the gates of heaven. Your story is not over. It is still evolving, and so therefore it means that there is still hope. Don't judge it as complete before the appointed time. Yet what is Job doing? He is mourning like the race is over, and then you have the friends who are judging like the story is done. And this toxic mix of short-sightedness is going to spiral these four individuals into 33 more chapters of arguing and bitterness. <laughs> 33 more chapters. Will you take
take this kind of short-sightedness and you mix it together, that gives you 33 more chapters of pain and heartache. Don't be short-sighted. Job warns, well, the race is over. And the friends judge like the story is done. See, this is what makes my friend that I shared about with you at the beginning so inspiring. Because unlike Job, unlike his friends, she never believed that her story was over. And so I'm going to invite her up right now. Would you guys give me a warm welcome to Sarah Hackman? There you go. shingles thing that went sideways and being received in prayer for 
uh, some of the stuff with your face? Uh, yes, um, about two years ago, I developed shingles in the ear, but a lot of it was in the brain, so I actually was in the hospital for about five days. I had four or five or six IVs, because I also developed meningitis. So I almost hit my ticket out of this world. I was almost there. It's like, no, you're not done. And it did paralyze uh, the left side of my face, which was drooping for a while, and it's come back a lot, but it's still yeah. not there. And I was like, really? Facial paralysis yeah. after all this, yeah. but it's still yeah. healing. Yeah. So going back to your response, I think one of the things, so once I knew what Sarah was going through, I noticed every time the Care Center prayer list came through email, and there's hundreds of prayer requests on there after every Wednesday, I'd always see your name. I know that's Sarah. I know what to pray for. And then I would see you up here on Sunday mornings, and I would see you taking advantage of every opportunity to get help. And I think what blew me away is I thought, this woman still has hope. Like, she's still clawing and fighting, and, and you are minimizing so much stuff that you've wrestled with. I know you want to glorify all the hardship and all that. But I thought to myself, I mean, there's one Sunday I'm sitting here going, she's still going for it. You guys ever seen Rocky? Like, you're a little bit like that. Like, she's when you're just, not smart enough to know when the fight's over. She just doesn't know where she keeps getting hit. But man, you just continue. So what is it for you? How have you clung on to this, this hope and this belief in the goodness of God through all of this? A lot of it is the people in the church, yeah. other churches, praying for me. Yeah. So seeing God through them, through people that maybe they can't help me, but they can pray for me. Yeah. And they can be yeah. there and they can listen. And that's very powerful to say, okay, there's God. I see him here, here, here. Okay, not there, but all right, over here. And that's really it. When you can see, it, it, when the answer doesn't come in the way of financial rescue or not a sad story yeah. because it's not over. And how do you know what you don't know? Yeah. Amen. Let's just sit there. That's <laughs> It means more than friend. There is a, 
of friendship in the Old Testament culture, especially even back in the days of Jesus, where if you were Jewish, you were to have a haverim, which is about two to three people in your life that you would dig deeper into the Word of God with. You would debate, you would discuss, you sometimes have disagreements. And so a haverim would be, like, think about how some of you have friends you go walking around the neighborhood with, or you've got your book club friends, or you've got your whatever group of friends. Everybody back in that time really knew what this haverim was. And the expectation is I had a group of people that we just jumped into the truth of God with and just tried to figure it out. And I think that's really the big difference between when we hear Sarah's story and we hear Job's story is that Job, unlike Sarah, he didn't have a healthy haverim. His friends eventually turned on him. Maybe they were just sharing their theology, but it sure wasn't helping. And so when we keep mentioning as a leadership, hey, we'd love for you all to be in a pathway group, another way to look at it, we just want you to have a haverim, a small group of people that's helping us talk and think about what do all these truths of God mean, especially when we're in a season of struggling, how valuable that is to have. So what do we do when we're suffering like a criminal, but we've committed no crime? Well, unlike Job and his friends, let's just remember that the story isn't over. And I know that's incredibly simple, sounds like a bumper sticker, but that's all I have for you today. Let's just remember the story isn't over, which we see so well through the life and death of Jesus. Because if the theology of Job's friends proved true, that those who suffer must be in sin, well then Jesus wasn't the Christ. What that means is that he was a criminal. Because imagine if you're watching the Romans pull his body off that cross. And if that is your theology, the theology of Job's three friends, then you can't see him as the Christ. You can only see him as a criminal. But the story wasn't over yet. Because three days later, the stone was rolled away and the tomb was empty. Jesus had resurrected the Messiah back from the dead, offering eternal life for whoever would receive it. He is offering each and every one of us the gift of eternal life. Have you said yes? There's going to be prayer teams up here, and they would love to talk to you more about what that means. You can say yes today. I invite you, Jesus, into my heart as my Lord and Savior, who died on the cross for my sins and rose again to give me life. Have you said yes to what Jesus is offering each and every one of us? Your story is not over yet. It's not. And this may just be for one person here today. I have no idea. But there's somebody here today that needs to hear that. Your story is not over. It's not over yet. The appointed time of our last earthly breath has not arrived. The cancer can still be crushed. The relationship can still be resuscitated. The marriage can still be healed. The grief can still turn to joy. And if it's not that, I'm telling you, it's just a matter of time. Because if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, it will happen in heaven. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. But what can God do right now? What do we believe he can do right now? Your story is not over. This may not help us answer the question, why do bad things happen to good people? But I tell you, it can reveal, why do we love God? Why do we love him? That's the real question. Is it just to be spared from suffering, or do we love him because he suffered as well? on the cross like a criminal so that our story could endure forever. He is so worthy of our praise. That's why we love him. We thank him for the blessing. 
We thank him for sparing us from suffering. But the reason we love him, the foundation, is because of who he is. He is so worthy of our praise. So let's stand. I'm going to invite the worship team back up. And we've got a little bit of time here. And so I want us to give a pause here and hit the brakes and let's respond. Because everything that's happened up to this moment is really just the appetizer. How we respond is the main course. And for you today, your response may be staying right where you're at. You may have every inclination, I want to leave right now. But instead you stay and you worship and you respond. Or you take communion, remembering that the body was broken. The blood was poured out on our behalf. Or maybe you come up for prayer. Maybe today for our prayer time is, is maybe a moment of confession. And maybe that confession is just in your own heart. You don't have to say anything to anyone up here if you don't want to. But that confession is, Lord, I judged before the appointed time. And because we judged before the appointed time, we, we lost sight of what the Lord can still do. And so as you come up from prayer, what, what you're doing is you're saying, Lord, I'm not going to judge before the appointed time. I still have hope that you can bring healing, that you can bring freedom. Because if we dig down enough, all of us know we've got shackles, like I do. And I want those chains broken. I want to be free. I want to experience more of his love, more of his presence, more of his power. But so often what I do is I judge before the appointed time. I shut the book and I say, man, the story's over. And God keeps opening it back up and saying, no, it's not over yet. Is there breath in your lungs? The story's not over. And so the prayer teams will be up here. We would love to pray for you whenever you want them to pray for you. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8, we are hard-pressed on every side, but we are not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed because of Jesus. So let's pray. Father, we thank you. We love you. You were hard-pressed for us. You were crushed, but not destroyed. And so I pray for your resurrection, resurrection power and presence to fill this space. I pray for those of us who are saying, you know what, I'm not going to judge before the appointed time. This story is not yet over. Would you meet them in this space, Lord? Would you do things in their life they've never seen before? Would you break chains? Would you rattle the cages? Would you set us free like never before? Lord, we love you. We desperately need you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So as you feel led, come up, take communion, receive prayer. Let's worship. Amen.